1: Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. This is the show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are making the news and a wider view on Irish and international business and politics. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. Coming up on today's show, we've got a very busy agenda. First up, we'll be discussing the state of President Biden's political career and his potential bid for a second term. Later on in the show, as the tech industry continues to make headlines announcing worldwide layoff, it reminds us that losing your job can be a very difficult and stressful experience. So we've invited a career consultant to talk to you about how to deal with redundancy and how to get your career back on track. And finally, we're going to take a closer look at the recent events in the world of football, starting with the controversy surrounding Manchester City and the impact that it could have on the club's finances. We'll also examine the record-breaking spending in the January transfer window and what it's going to mean for the future of football. You can email me at takingstock@newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. But first up on the programme today, at 80 years of age and with a somewhat underwhelming approval rating, many were very unsure about President Biden's future as leader. However, a strong and maybe some say good showing by the Democrats in the midterms election has changed the outlook for the president and has many rethinking his potential for a second term. So joining me now to discuss the events that have impacted President Biden's political standing and what it means for his political future is James Poletti of the Financial Times in Washington. James, you're welcome back to Taking Stock.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: Now, James, um, we've often heard President Biden refer to the country being at an inflection point. Maybe perhaps his presidency is at an inflection point as he prepares to compete for a second term in office, and we'll come to that in a moment. But can you start us off today by talking about what successes he has pointed to under his stewardship, particularly in that State of the Union address that he made this week?
2: Well, I think the main success that he pointed to um, relates to the economy, so um, 12 million jobs created uh, over two years um, is really kind of a bet- better record on the labor market than any, you know, president in recent memory. Um, and um, sort of as, as the U.S. kind of emerged from the pandemic, um, really um, the, you know, the, the Biden was able to achieve a return to full employment within two years. Um, and, uh, he sort of championed that, um, that, that result, but also pointed to all the legislation that he got done. Um, so there was the initial stimulus, um, uh, in March, 2021, then there was the infrastructure bill, which was passed on a bipartisan basis, um, in November of last year of, uh, actually of 2021. And then last year, um, all the subsidies Uh, for semiconductor manufacturing, uh, for clean energy, um, and that's just on the sort of economic, uh, that's just on the economic side. So I think that he can trumpet, uh, sort of, you know, the rebound of the labor market and a series of legislative accomplishments. Um, and those are the, the, those are the main, um, um, you know,
1: th- those are the main things he's pointing to. Yeah, and he frequently points to the economy and, of course, the fact that there are more jobs now in the US and a stunning rate of increase. Um, but voters don't seem to be connecting with the claims that the Biden economic plan is working in their own financial situations, even as they are celebrating those unemployment rates at a nearly 54-year low. How, why, why can't he translate those successes into support for himself?
2: Well, I think that there's the, the, uh, a first answer to that, which is um, uh, inflation. So so this m- massive rebound in the labor market has been accompanied by high inflation, um, you know, of the kind that we haven't seen for 40 years. Um, and Americans were not used to it. Um, it was very hard to get used to it. Uh, some have you know, blamed uh, Biden stimulus for kind of overheating the economy. Um, for finding themselves uh, in situations where wages weren't really catching up to the the higher cost of living, um, and so there's kind of um, there, there's a, there's there's disappointment and even anger about mm. uh, inflation, which is subsisting even even as inflation has started to come down,
3: mm.
2: um, and that's just in terms of the you know the economic indicators, and then there's a bigger question about whether. Uh, Biden is really um, and his team have been able to uh, really explain um their economic policies to Americans um, in a way that uh, kind of resonated with them. and that's uh, that's a bigger sort of political problem that they will certainly have to grapple with. Um, as they, uh, you know, as they head into a potential re-election campaign.
1: Absolutely. Those huge pieces of legislation, the statecraft that he's involved in, very hard to get that message down to a kind of trickle-down level where people and voters see it as affecting them. Just as, Let's go back a little bit um, and talk about his approval ratings. Where is he at now, James? And in your view, how does he compare to other former presidents at this point in their tenure where they're maybe thinking about, look, uh, a run at a second term?
2: Well, I mean, you know, he's last time I checked, he was at about, you know, 40, 44 percent approval in some of the, um, you know, the the polling averages, um, which is better than than he was uh, over the summer of last year, but still not at the point where he was um, above 50 percent, you know, before August of 2021. And in terms of how it compares with predecessors, um, you know, uh, former President Trump certainly had very low, low approval ratings at this stage. Um, um, Barack Obama had, had better approval ratings um, at this point, uh, though not hugely better approval ratings. Um, and, you know, you've seen um, uh, presidents uh, with much higher approval ratings, like George H.W. Bush, um, at this point in their presidency lose re-election and you've seen uh, Presidents with lower approval ratings like Ronald Reagan um, in the early 80s um, You know actually go on to uh, You know win uh, uh, with a huge vote in the Electoral College um, uh, You know their own re-election bids and, and, and go on to have a second term in the White House. So it's still a bit early, but I think it's kind of an even bet about, about which way Biden would go at this point.
1: Yeah, but it, it does seem like it is now his own decision to make. I mean, last year we would have heard some rumblings from within the Democratic Party about maybe wanting a young, younger candidate. But what is his support like and his standing within, the own, within his own party? Did the, those midterm elections change his sort of standing in his own party?
2: I think I, they, they changed them, them a lot. I think they helped Biden a lot. I mean, I think if uh, if we look at what might have happened if Biden had suffered, you know, the traditional sort of beating that presidents take in their first term, in the midterms, I think there would have been a lot of questions about whether Biden should run within the party. There might have been even some candidates, alternative candidates uh, springing up, um, and instead that didn't happen. Mm. So Biden was able to, uh, you know consolidate his position no one 's really out there challenging him. Um, the White House has said you know that he's uh, you know that he intends to run. I think we should expect an announcement in the next few weeks or months um, and so it really is sort of his decision you know whether to whether to run, but some of the uh, sort of doubts about his viability as a as a second-term presidents haven't, you know, been vanished overnight. I mean, they're still there. There's still concerns about um, kind of his age, um, whether he can actually deliver another victory for the Democrats. Um, try to brush some of those away in the State of the Union address. Um, we'll see how that goes.
1: Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. and I'm talking to James Politi of the Financial Times in Washington about Joe Biden and his potential bid for re-election. That's an interesting um, aspect, isn't it? The age thing. it It, it comes up. More and more frequently now, when you're discussing the potential of of a re-election campaign, and it's not without merit. Like he's 80 years of age, and he walks like an 80 year old man, but he's still getting a lot of work done behind the scenes. Maybe he doesn't have that razzmatazz, but you know, we mentioned the record employment figures. We mentioned what he's done in the economy. He inherited. Um, a real basket case when it came to trying to take over from Donald Trump. He was straight into a pandemic, you know, then the energy issues. Um, so maybe it's behind the scenes he's successful. He doesn't look like the, the most dynamic candidate, but maybe that's not a bad thing.
2: Yes, I think that, um, you know, in many ways he's been constantly underestimated um, as a politician Um, And to everyone's sort of peril, in a way, um, because every time he's counted out, he seems to bounce back. And he has, um, you know, although Americans really don't seem to kind of love Joe Biden, they're sort of content with him being president in some ways, especially compared to the alternative uh, um, on the right, which is, you know, has been sort of Donald Trump and may again be Donald Trump. Um, And... Um, you know, in terms of the age, you know, there is a concern that he would, would be uh, potentially 86 years old at the end of his second term. Um, and um, but so far, I mean, um, it's, it's um, you know, I think he seems to be handling uh, things quite well. Mm. I think, you know, there, there might be a, a decision that he will have to make with his family Um, with his wife, uh, the First Lady, Jill Biden, in particular, about whether, um, you know, he really wants to go ahead with it. I think that'll be kind of the final gut check uh, within the Biden family about whether he should run. Mm. Um, But I think all points, you know, generally, Democrats are kind of democratic leaders, at least, and lawmakers. And, the Democratic establishment is is content with him. Mm. Um, Most Democratic voters, according to polls, would still rather see an alternative. But um, I I, I don't think that they will have that that choice, really.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the Republicans and the opposition, because some say that the Democrats had that stronger than expected performance in last year's midterms elections because... um, the Republicans were still offering something that was completely unpalatable to the undecided voter. Um, has that dynamic, uh, in you know, affected in a good way Biden's chances of re-election if Donald Trump becomes their candidate? It's that race against you know sobriety, solidity, and steady as she goes versus back to the mania, if you like, of Donald Trump's presidency.
2: Well, I think the kind of um, the expectation here is that if Joe Biden faces Trump again, um, uh, that would be, in a way, Biden's easiest path to reelection. He's proven in a way that he can beat Trump um, and, in a way, he's beaten Trump twice because a lot of the Democratic—I mean, the Republican candidates um, uh, who were supported by Trump in the the kind of high-profile races uh, in the midterm elections— lost um and um so he feels like he's sort of um uh you know the man who who can defeat trump and trumpism Mm. the question is what happens against a, a different republican um there are certainly biden will try to depict other republicans you know for example florida governor ron DeSantis as sort of equally trumpist even if they're younger uh, but still, like, quite extreme on a lot of issues. Um, and he'll try to, you know, replay that playbook, we would expect. Yeah. Um, the question is, will it work as, as effectively as it would against Trump? And against Trump, it's harder to, you know, it's harder to say that Biden was too old because, you know, Trump is also you know, just a couple of years younger.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah, he used that anti MAGA. Um, sentiment wisely in the midterms and also the Roe versus Wade. So you you might see that would feature large in any future campaign. What about his handling of those classified documents, the ones that were found at his home in Delaware, Um, with Donald Trump facing multiple investigations? Surely the fact that he's also been investigated puts him on a bit of a back foot when it comes to campaigning on any type of ethical platform. But how are these things playing out over there, James?
3: Um,
2: I think that it was very kind of um, it was very unexpected that Mm. Biden would have his own classified documents problem. And it seemed to have stalled some of his political momentum in January. Um, I don't think that it set him back in a major in a major way, but it may it will make it harder for him to uh, talk about, you know, Trump's handling of classified documents um, in a potential reelection campaign. Um, And it's sort of. Um, uh, dented uh, Biden's, um, uh, you know, efforts to show that he is a more transparent president because he didn't, he didn't, he, you know, although he cooperated with the Justice Department, unlike Trump, who resisted handing them back, um, he didn't really communicate that these documents had been found in real time, um, and so we only found out about them um, in sort of drips and drabs. And I think that that um, that was kind of particularly, you know, damaging in a in a way to uh, to, to President Biden. Mm.
1: So James, if if are you thinking that he will announce something in the coming weeks, and if he does, who would be his uh, running mate this time? Do you think Kamala Harris will will be his second again?
2: I think all indications are that it will be Kamala Harris, and that's kind of what we're hearing from. Uh, people around the administration. I think it would take a lot for him to, uh, you know, try to pick an alternative to Kamala Harris. Um, she has, you know, low approval ratings herself, um, but they are pretty, you know, they they are still, I think, very much a team. Um, and I think it would be, um, it's a, it, it would be extremely rare and um and and sort of difficult for him to um to to ditch Kamala Harris of mm-hmm. course he doesn't have to make that decision for a while um and um you know even after announcing his re-election campaign um so if if um you know if, if things take a real turn for the worse he might have to resort to kind of extreme measures um but i don't think that Um, you know, there's any expectation that he's searching for an alternative vice, vice
1: president. Okay, well, there's a million miles to go in this one yet. But James, as always, thank you for your insights. That was James Politi of the Financial Times from Washington. James, many thanks. Thanks so much for having me. This is Taking Stock on News Talk. I'm Mandy Johnston. And after the break, if you've ever found yourself facing a redundancy or worried about your employment situation, then stay tuned for a career consultant who's written a bestseller about how to get back in the game. You're welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, so far, 2023 has already seen the recent trend of layoffs continue with redundancies announced by PayPal uh, worldwide the latest set uh, of figures that we've seen and there's no doubt about it that losing your job is really, really tough no matter what stage of life you're at and no matter what career path you've chosen. Um, However, to talk about this and maybe to get some of you out there back on track is the author of CV and Interview 101 career consultant Sinead English. Sinead, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you, Mandy. Now, Sinead, you know, with candidate screening and LinkedIn and, you know, the whole process of, you know, even getting an interview becoming more and more complex. That idea of losing a job and getting back out into the market is a really difficult one for many people to kind of contend with. But to kick us off today, can you just talk to us a little bit about what are the feelings and emotions that people might have when they're made redundant unexpectedly?
0: Oh, you know, it's it's shock. Anger, upset, uh, more anger, uh, and, and especially if you're not expecting it. Mm. We've had a lot of redundancies and layoffs in the news now, as you mentioned, over the last month or so. So if you're in those industries, maybe it's not entirely unexpected. But when it happens, even though you think it might happen when it actually happens, it is really shocking and you know, almost like a physical shock. So certainly you will be upset You'll be angry and all those feelings are completely valid. And you certainly shouldn't, you know, have a knee-jerk reaction and go, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm going to jump out there and get another job and pretend it didn't happen. Mm. Because it's a terrible thing to happen to anyone.
1: It sure is. One of the things that has struck me, particularly about the the tech job losses, is how public uh, a lot of it is. A friend of mine who was working for Twitter said that they were absolutely inundated with text messages like, some are very welcome offering other jobs and stuff. But like it's it's very public for some people to try and deal with them. People are sympathizing by sending text messages or hearing it on the news. So like what advice would you give to somebody who has just been made redundant unexpectedly? What is the first thing that they should do?
0: Uh, well, the first thing is probably get angry and allow themselves to get angry. And, you know, allow yourself to feel a bit hard done by and feel sorry for yourself for a little while. I really don't think that jumping to say, I have to get another job straight away and just ignoring almost that it happened is a healthy thing because you need to take stock. Um, Fine, maybe it was just you, maybe it was lots of others of your colleagues, but it's happening to you and it's an individual thing for everybody. Mm. So take your time. Okay, you might have a financial imperative to go out and get another job as soon as possible, but certainly avoid the knee-jerk reaction. And sometimes it's an opportunity to take a step back and go, do you know what? I've been doing that kind of work now for a number of years. Is that something I really want to continue doing? Because you may get offers from well-meaning and very welcome friends, ex-colleagues, say, come and work for us. Um, But rather than just running into something and then regretting it shortly afterwards, it is a little bit of, give yourself a little bit of time to think it through.
3: Mm -hmm. Many
0: companies will offer Outplacement or some kinds of supports or financial supports to help you, maybe to retrain or even just get your CV and your interview skills back up to scratch and, and take everything that's going.
1: Mm. I think Stripe were the first of the tech sector to kind of do this really well, where they had uh, certainly the staff's interests seemed to be at the kernel of their announcement. Actually, you know, and that you know, boarding into to other areas maybe and helping them with their career path, but um. If you are sitting there and you've been re- made redundant and you've processed that information and, you know, taken time to take stock, as you say there, that's not going to pay the bills. Eventually, you're just going to have to get out there into the world again. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of a CV in the modern age. Um, because as I said at the outset there, you know, a lot of the applications for jobs at the moment are automated in in a way that you might never actually encounter a human being until you're well into a process so what advice would you give to people who are sitting there with a blank sheet of paper and starting back to write their cv again
0: well you know it's really interesting you say that mandy a blank sheet of paper and that often is the best place to start because everybody who is working has some form of cv but if it has been years since you've updated your cv There's no point in just trying to tack a bit onto the front of it or, you know, just update the most recent job. So it is a good idea, bearing in mind, as you said, that so many companies now use these applicant tracking systems. So essentially what those systems are doing is they are scanning your CV for relevant words. So words that are relevant to the job that is under review. So, for example, if you're a financial analyst um, and you're applying for a job that maybe is a financial specialist
3: Mm.
0: and the job is actually the same job, when you read the description it's the same job, you should change your title or at least put the word specialist into your CV as well because the applicant tracking system may not be sophisticated enough to know that financial analyst also equals specialist.
1: So Sinead, are you you're up so Sinead, are you saying that every single uh, CV that you have, every single job application is a bespoke CV as opposed to the standardized one that we would have used in the past?
0: Yeah, that everyone, you know, here's one I prepared five years ago. Mm. <laughs> I'm just going to keep sending it out. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be recommending that every time you apply for a job, you have to write a new CV because then you spend your whole life writing CVs. But what I would suggest is that target even the top one fifth of your CV to the job under review. So ideally on your CV, after your contact details at the top, you should have a short summary, two to three bullet points that describe you and what you can offer that particular role. Mm. And that's where you can really go through the job description, pick out the keywords the things that are emphasised in the job description and put them front and centre on the top of your CV. Hmm. So if that was the only part of the CV I was going to read, I would read that and think, actually, this person is a lot of what we're looking for.
1: And so that content, you know, is this the, the bit of the CV where it says I'm a dynamic, forward-looking, yeah. thinking individual? <laughs> you know, I always look at those and think, well, that's a bit of, is that a bit of fluff put in there? Do people not just skip yeah. over that? So you're saying that's really important.
0: Yes, exactly, and you, you, know, you absolutely put your finger um, on it there, Mandy, in that, that fluffy bit, dynamic, forward-looking, motivated, action-oriented, blah, blah, blah person, mm. they do ignore that. In fact, that just annoys people because it's just a waste of, I've just read that for five seconds and I'm cross. So get rid of that stuff and put in action, very targeted phrases and words and sentences that link you to the job.
1: Mm, that's really good has advice
0: to be so specific to the job so when I'm reading it when the employer is reading it or when the applicant tracking system is scanning it it's got a high relevance score mm. rather than the motivated dynamic action oriented person who could be anybody in the whole world
1: that's really good advice. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm talking to Sinead English, who is an author of CV and Interview 101. And we're talking about how to get back on track if you have been made redundant. And Sinead's giving us some very sound advice. Um, Look, we've been talking about automation and uh, CV's literally been put through the ringer. And, you know, you're, you're almost score taking on base based on just words. What about that human interaction that is so important uh, when you're sitting in front of somebody and trying to either assess them from an employer's point of view or as somebody who's trying to get a job? Where does that come into it now? How can you in this world of automation and online platforms like LinkedIn, how, how can you interject your own personality and how can you assess somebody, um, you know, in a way that is, is more personal? When does that happen?
0: Uh, well, you know, it really happens at the interview stage. I mean, it's, it's difficult to get your personality across too much in the CV. Mm. You know, really the CV's job is to give them an indication of the type of work and the type of experience you have, but also to sell you into the role. I've seen so many CVs, Mandy, and they're just shopping lists of what is expected of the person in the job. It reads like a list of responsibilities
1: mm. in this
0: job. This is what I was supposed to do. It doesn't tell me how well you did it. There's no achievements in the CV. So I'm kind of going, well, that was what they're supposed to do, but I'm not really sure how well they did it. When it comes to trying to get your personality across, in a LinkedIn profile, you can do a little bit more because it's more multimedia in that you can put a photo of yourself in there. You can put a couple of short videos. There is a a possibility now on LinkedIn to have a video introduction of yourself, a 30-second video introduction. We did a poll last year on LinkedIn asking how many people would use it. <laughs> About 2% of people said they would actually put up a video of themselves. But the possibility is there. And on LinkedIn as well, in addition to your work experience, your skills, your education, you could also add in um, example of uh, you know projects that you've worked on, maybe if you're in creative industries, uh, construction, if you've worked on projects, you can put in photos of those onto your profile. So it gives a little bit more of a sense, you know, 360 degree sense of the person.
1: Yeah, than should, the I, I wanted to ask about LinkedIn specifically. Like, does it actually translate to jobs? Are people using it well? And is there a few bits of advice you can give us about if you are on LinkedIn, how you can make that work for you specifically?
0: Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is a great tool um, for getting people to know you exist (laughs)
3: Mm.
0: and getting people to know what you're capable of. That's one side of it because you would have a good profile. So when I land on your profile, it's 100% complete. But 50% of LinkedIn profiles aren't complete. So that's the first thing you can do. Make sure it's 100% complete.
1: And when you say complete, Sinead, sorry to interrupt you there. When you say complete, what do you mean? Is it just people are listing their jobs and not their careers or are they not giving enough detail? Why is it only 50% complete?
0: Uh, so it's things like they, people don't have a photograph on it.
1: Ah, okay. Um,
0: they don't have details of at least two jobs. Uh, they, there's a section called skills on your LinkedIn profile and you can put a, put in up to 50 skills in there. Literally just go through a list and click, click. Yes, I have this, I have this. People might put in three or four because they don't even know it's there. Hmm. The really good thing about making sure that you're using up all those skills is back to the keywords. There's over 700 million profiles on LinkedIn um, and a couple of million of them in Ireland, which I was surprised about so many people had LinkedIn profiles, but there you go. Um, but if, if I'm an employer searching through LinkedIn, I mean, I'm not going to scroll through millions of profiles. I'm going to be using LinkedIn, LinkedIn's very elaborate search tools that employers pay for to find very specific candidates and I'll be targeting by keywords So I'm going to say, give me all the people who have five years experience in X industry and who have these keywords in their profile. If you don't have the keywords in your profile as your skills, then you're not going to appear on the list.
1: Right. I want to ask you, um, Sinead, about an entirely different audience, not one who's been made redundant recently in the tech sector. I'm thinking of people who are maybe in their 60s or early 60s who've worked all of their lives in organizations, be it nursing, uh, be it carers, be it army. And that's all they've ever known. And look, there's a lot of issues at the moment about the workforce and we're having we're almost at full employment. So people are willing to to take on people who are not necessarily experienced and train them. Can you just give us a little bit of advice for somebody who might be coming out of a profession after 30 years in the same organisation who doesn't really think that their skills will translate elsewhere, what should their starting path be? Because I see loads of people who are just in their early 60s who want to actually work in a different area but just don't know how to go about it.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, The first thing I would say is that those types of people and that cohort of people are better leading with themselves than with their CV. So, you know, we would say to clients, oh, have a great CV and use that to apply for jobs because their experience maybe is very relevant to the jobs that they're applying to. But somebody like you've just described who's had a great career for 30 years in a particular area and now they're leaving that and they want to do something new and challenging, if I'm looking at their CV or if an employer is looking at their CV in this new area that they've applied to, Mm -hmm. they're probably going to look at the CV and go, well, I don't see any overlap here, so no, maybe I've got the wrong CV. So that's somebody leading with their CV. But that particular person, if they can identify a couple of contacts, targets, people they can have a conversation with who are working in an area that they think they may be interested in, mm-hmm. that's a far better way to start the ball rolling.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Well, so that's... These are
0: called informational interviews where you would just find people, you know, friends, a friend of a friend, neighbours, sister, whatever. You're not sitting down and pinning them to the wall and saying, give me a job what you're saying is, I'm thinking that this might be a good fit for me. I was always curious about how this industry worked. Would you mind having half an hour conversation with me about that? It's called an informational interview. I can even send you some questions in advance. And then what that person then will get is a really good idea of what are the opportunities in that sector, what are the challenges, maybe how their skills might map over. A really good question to ask people is, well, have you seen somebody with my background and my profile make that transition into this industry successfully?
1: Yeah, well, that's really good advice, Sinead. And um, certainly something I think uh, merits a further discussion maybe at some point in the future. But for now, that is Sinead English. She's author of CV and Interview 101. Sinead, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Mandy.
1: You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. Find out how the beautiful game is being changed by big business and high finance after the break. You welcome back to Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talk. Now, truly eye-watering figures from January's transfer window in the UK Premiership and what happened last week is seen by many as a game-changer in football. That, plus the revelations about what may or may not have been going on at Man City is made for some pretty ugly commentary on the beautiful game of late. To break down some of the boardroom politics and the economics behind some of these figures is Martin Lipton, who's chief sports reporter at The Sun. Martin, thanks so much for being with us today. No problem. Now, for those of us who are obsessed with sport, eh, we know all the ins and outs of this, but can you just take us uh, and our listeners through those transfer figures and why indeed the figures in this January caused such a stir?
4: The the truth of it is that the reason the Premier League expenditure, which was huge, looked even more so is that nobody else has got any money. Mm. So the Premier League clubs spent somewhere in the region of £1.9 billion over, uh, I think that's right, over January. Now, the rest of Europe spent, happens happily between it. Chelsea spent alone £300 million, which was more than all of the other, all of the clubs in all of the other big four leagues. That's every club in Spain, Germany, Italy and France put together. Mm. Uh, it's a staggering amount of money. All the more so because nobody else has got any, yeah. and I think that's caused the the confusion and anger and disbelief across across Europe and and beyond. Mm. Uh, but it's also a, just a, a, a symptom really of the financial power and success of the Premier League in being the one truly global football league.
1: Yeah, and it's, I suppose, a real demonstration that the Super League that they were talking about last year, um, although it received an awful lot of opposition, that in, in effect, it may be in operation by default. And we can't have any discussion about this without discussing what happened at Chelsea. Uh, I'll let you into something here, Martin, and you can do some figures on this. I was 20 years of age working in the Football Association of Ireland when Roy Keane signed from Nottingham Forest, to Manchester United. It was nineteen ninety three, so that's thirty years ago you could do the sums on that. Um, and the transfer fee at the time was three point five million and it caused a stir because it was record breaking. That's 30 years ago and we were at three point five million. One hundred and twenty one million Chelsea paid for one player. How are these economics sustainable for a club?
4: Well you could me, ask the same question of why PSG could pay over two hundred million for Neymar and 180 million for Mbappe. Why, in the past, Barcelona and Milan and Real Madrid have spent huge sums of money, eye-popping sums at the time, and nobody seemed to bat an eyelid then. Uh, Suddenly, it's English clubs who are spending money and it's a bad thing. The reality is that football inflation has outpaced other inflation, but so have income levels. Um, Chelsea this year will have revenues of half a billion pounds. Mm. That's a staggering sum, Uh, as will uh, Manchester United and Manchester City and Liverpool will be similar and Tottenham could be above 500 million pounds and Arsenal will be 440 million pounds. So the the money's there. They're spending money that they're earning. It's as simple as that. And it's the same as, you know, pop stars asking for big money and film stars, if they're grossing huge sums for the film. They'll demand top top dollar. It's a reality. Yeah. What I would say is transfer fees also are made, or expanded because of the bizarre nature of football economics. Yeah. So if I'm Chelsea and I spend £106 million pounds on Enzo Fernandez uh, from Benfica to break the British record and sign him to an eight-year contract, in my books... I only have to pay £10 million a year or £12 million a year for that player because it's what's called amortised spread over the length of the contract. Mm. If I sell a player to go into the books to balance the books, I'm allowed to claim the full value of the sale minus what's left on his contract. If he is a player I bought, if he's a player, if Chelsea sell, for example, uh, Mason Mount, the England international this summer, for let's say 70 million pounds they can claim the full 70 million pounds as revenues so it is a bizarre quirk of economics clubs are supposed to balance their books or near enough they're allowed to make a loss of for the premier league 35 million pounds a year Uh, europe is less than that it's something like 35 million pounds over three years but that's not real loss that's football loss And any money you spend on grounds, on training grounds, on women's and community schemes, all come out of your calculations. So it's a a system that's designed to actually reward clubs for investing money.
1: Yeah, and uh, one of those clubs who's investing a lot of money through its owners was Man City, who again came under the spotlight this week. Um, Its owners investing in recent years, that money translated no question, to trophies and access to the European Championships. Tell us what happened, what they're being accused of, and what are the types of penalties that are being discussed for Man City?
4: There are a series of allegations. The main ones are that City basically didn't tell the truth, that they claimed that a lot of their income was from sponsors, when in fact it was from the owners. And you're not allowed to have more than a percentile of owner funding. They're also accused of basically running shadow contracts for the former manager, Roberto Mancini, who it said was on being paid £1.45 million net per year, what he was by City, but he had allegedly another contract for £1.75 million per year from the owners to do four days of coaching a year. Also, that player contracts did not tell the truth, that they failed to meet the rules of the Premier League and of UEFA, and also that they lied and tried to obstruct the investigation which started in December 2018. And the threat is real of points deduction, multi-million pound fines, and indeed potential expulsion relegation out of the Premier League.
1: Mm. So those rules and regulations that you referred to earlier aren't necessarily working. Um. And you know, in, in fairness to the teams who have lost by marginal points, uh, in recent years, that could potentially be the biggest question. They're playing by what they believe is a fair set of rules for everyone. Um. And there is a at least one club. It, it would seem, and it's yet to be, I suppose, proven uh, that one club is not abiding by that. Now you mentioned there one of the penalties that may be facing them is expulsion from the uh, premiership but that has consequences for them in Europe that may last beyond one year. Talk us through uh, what they might face in terms of European losses uh, for television rights and and broadcast fees etc.
4: This season uh, for example Manchester City will gross around £270 million in TV fees from UEFA and the Premier League. £270 million every season. Extraord- extraordinary. So if, if they are relegated, even with a parachute money payment, they will be out of Europe for three seasons. So, because it, they'll be out of Europe next season because they have been relegated, they'll be out of Europe the following season because they can't qualify for Europe unless they're in the Premier League, and so they won't be able to get into Europe until the, for, for three seasons. Now, if you look at that in simple, simple terms, that is a hell of a lot of money. You're talking at the thick end of £600 million in revenue over those three seasons. Like because incredible. the maximum they'll get in the championship is £50 million.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely incredible. And you'd have to imagine that, obviously, they'll lose players as well. Players won't want to stick around to be out of the Champions League for three years or even miss a season. So it has huge implications. When do you think a ruling on any of this is likely?
4: That is less than clear. Uh, Theoretically, it could be relatively swiftly. They could hold the commission within a few weeks and months, and there are clubs in the Premier League who are desperately demanding uh, a decision by the end of this season. Other legal experts are suggesting we're talking about years. In truth, nobody knows, because this is such an unprecedented situation. I suspect it will probably drag into next season, if not next year, but... There's no reason why it couldn't be expedited. And the danger, of course, if if there's eventually a relegation punishment for City and they've been charged this season, including alleged offences this season, which are obstructing the inquiry, then the team that finishes 18th this season will have a case if City are relegated next season, given that... They could argue, they would argue that the punishment should have been in, in place this summer. Mm. So again, it's an absolute nest of vipers. And I think the, the, the earlier it's settled either way, and that could, of course, be the city entirely innocent, absolutely done nothing to hide, and will be cleared. Who knows? I'm not, a, I'm not listening to the evidence. I haven't, I haven't heard it. I've only seen snapshots and snippets of it. But yeah the swifter there is resolution, the better for all concerned.
1: Yeah. Well, this has been going on since 2018. This investigation is clear that they'll have access to the biggest and best lawyers that the UK has to offer. Uh, So it could easily drag on, uh, I suppose, Martin, you mentioned earlier when I was talking about the criticisms about the, the premiership that you know, this sort of thing happens across Europe. Why do you think there was so much attention then? And do you th- feel it's unfounded to look at the premiership that they sort of expect that this is the level they should be at? Or is there, a, is, there, is there something there that you think that has been wrong in terms of focusing on the amount of money that's spent?
4: Well, the money's there to spend. And I, I think a bit of it is jealousy. You didn't have the Premier League complaining when Serie A had all the money in the nineties in Italy, or when La Liga, Real Madrid, and Barcelona had all the money to buy all the best players in the early part of, of this century. Uh, but when the boots on the other foot, te- suddenly it's a terrible outrage and it's completely wrong and it's unacceptable. And boo,
1: or maybe I'm not sure that's necessarily correct. But maybe it's just that one club spending the same as the all top tier clubs in Italy, Spain, France, and Germany is is something that's just of concern to the football community.
4: Well, it, I think there is a concern there, but the reason that they're able to do it is because the Premier League has gone out and sold itself better than anybody else. You know, it has a few inbuilt advantages. The English language being one of them. The timing of the games is another. Uh, the speed and quality of the football, a huge one. The fact that they were able to, you know, they have built exponentially over a number of years. It is a massive fact. You know, the Premier League clubs earn £3 billion between them per season, slightly over that. In, in in television revenues. The bottom club, you know, as, as, as I saw today, Noi City finished bottom of the Premier League, earned more in domestic TV deals last season than Bayern Munich, who won the German League, Juventus, who won the uh, Italian League, and PSG, who won the French League. But that's mm. due to the success of the league in selling itself. Other leagues had the option to go and go to market, didn't do it so successfully. So, you know, should you be punished for being successful?
1: Yeah, I don't think they're being punished. I think that they've made a success of having, you know, a lot of investors who bought those clubs wisely with deep pockets and have invested for a series of years now. And it's, 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 it's put them up at top, as you say. But there's also another sort of success story here. It's those feeder clubs uh, from Portugal, Benfica and IX, the, the likes of those feeder clubs. They've been very successful in kind of creating a model to feed into the premiership in the UK, haven't they?
4: Look, if you look at Benfica, Sporting and Porto, you look at Ajax and Feyenoord and and other clubs throughout Europe, they're effectively funded and incredibly successful by the Premier League. They joke in Germany about the English excess, basically. An English club comes in, asks for 20 million more, and you know they'll pay it. So the ecosystem is pretty much funded by English football. Now, FIFA have put out uh, some stats today that in the January market, 57% 57% of all the international transfers in the world were by English clubs, mm. which means that the English clubs are spending the money that actually keeps a- alive football in a number of these countries. So they don't say no to the money when they, when it's knocked on, you know, when it's offered them. And yet some of, some people moan about the fact that the money's there. Well, I'm not sure that's necessarily right either. I mean, I think there is there are genuinely concerns about the equality of football across the board. I think it's completely outrageous that one club can dominate in one country because it's in the Champions League. So if you look at a period of time, you've had clubs, you know, you've got a one-club league in Germany. Bayern Munich are about to win their 11th straight title.
3: Mm.
4: Now, how can, how can that be good for football? Because Bayern Munich just go and buy every good player from every other team. Mm. They just do because they're the dominant force. Now, you don't have that in England. You've got, at the moment, you've got the big six and they're about to be joined, if not already joined, by Newcastle. That's seven clubs that want to compete in the top four and are fighting, you know, aggressively to do so every season. There's, there's actually, you would argue, more competition in England than in any other country.
1: Well, yeah, I think that there's a a way to go on this one yet and the spend at Chelsea is probably going to result in a summer of the bonfire of the vanities to get rid of some of the players they already have. But for now, anyway, we'll have to leave it there. That was Martin Lipton, Chief Sports Reporter at The Sun. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
4: No worries, thank you.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, have you ever heard of shadow work? Neither had I, but apparently we're all at it. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks as always, to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo de Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is coming up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with all of your Sunday newspapers on On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.